I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 30 years ago this month, the Berlin Wall came down. And Richard, I know you were there. (laughs) Yeah, it was the best story I ever covered as a reporter. A time of tremendous hope for democracy with the collapse of communist dictatorships in, in Eastern Europe. But today in Eastern Europe, in many parts of the world, there seems to be a wind that's blowing a bit in the other direction. I don't want to overplay this compared to the fall of the most oppressive empire in modern history. Uh, But, you know, we are seeing anti-democratic movements in much of Europe and other parts of the world. Yeah, so today we're going to look at one solution put forward by many democracy reformers, a return to civility. But is that the answer? Our guest, Reed Galen, is skeptical. So why isn't civility the answer to Trump um, by his opponents? Um, Because he will take your civility and squash you with it. You know, the Democrats are playing chess and Trump's eating the pieces, right? Like, it's not the same ballgame. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? So let's start with a few words and phrases that are part of a healthy democracy. Compromise, tolerance, flexibility, reason, modesty. A belief that my side doesn't necessarily have all the answers on issues of public policy. A certain respect for doubt that maybe you're wrong about a few things. And a sense that the folks on the other side aren't holding their beliefs just because they're evil, but maybe they have a point or at least mean well. In America's brittle and rigid debates, those values right now, I think, are under assault. Our democracy is threatened. So let's take a look at one solution and see whether it stands up. Civility, something that's been the bedrock of this show, but is it enough? Reed Galen joins us at our table. Reed is an independent political strategist and a writer. He left the Republican Party in 2016 after Donald Trump's nomination. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thanks for having me. So, Reed, the political mess that we're in, how much is Donald Trump to blame? There's that scene in The, in the Shining, right, where, where Jack Nicholson bursts through the door and says, here's Johnny. I'm not sure that uh, Donald Trump created The Shining, but he certainly is a, a, a product of it. And I, and I think that his bombast and the way that he talks and the way he carries himself as a, as a leader, I think certainly doesn't contribute to that. So I think that we were already in a place 
that uh, was, you know, headed downhill from the way we talk about things, but certainly he's accelerated that descent. In what ways were we heading downhill before he came on? I mean, he wasn't, he didn't just arrive. Sure out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I think you can go back probably to the mid-90s um, when Newt Gingrich took over as speaker. Remember, when he was the minority whip, he was uh, he was a firebrand, right? Uh, you know, a new breed of sort of conservative politician, took over in 94, and really helped nationalize politics and make it an us-versus-them thing that it hadn't been before, obviously. You know, he, was, he led the charge of impeachment and then had to leave sort of in disgrace on his own. But we never, I don't think, really recovered from that. We might have, you know, a little bit in that sort of 99 to 2001, 2002 space uh, after Bush's uh, election in 9-11. But then I think that you saw with Iraq and everything else, you know, we started back into the division. Sarah Palin, I think, cracked that door open further. I think the Tea Party stuff in the wake of Obamacare really started breaking it up. We used to have, you know, blue dog Democrats. We had progressive Democrats. We had far-right conservatives, Rockefeller Republicans, and now it's like you're either one or the other. You're blue or you're red, and there's very little that you can do to sort of break out of your box. Your examples all come from the right. Um, Is it all their fault? Well, I don't know that it's necessarily all their fault. Take Rush Limbaugh or any of the conservative talk radio, Fox. They have an amazing ability to maintain a level of discord among their people that, that keeps them sort of at this you know, simmering point, and then they they fire up the gas to boiling when they need it. I will say that there has been a situation, and I think it's exacerbated by what you see coming out of the Democratic field this time, is that if you're not from New York City, you're not from L.A., you're not from San Francisco or Washington, D.C., it slides very quickly into sort of a patronizing, almost anthropological feel. You're, like, not, you're not woke. Right. Look at, the, look at those people in, you know, Nebraska. Look at them. While some of the people on the right might, might have started the fire, Right, the people on the left don't aren't either un, they're either unwilling or unable to figure out how to recapture those people. For decades, were Democrats, right, working class white Democrats. You're a former Republican, mm. now an independent. Can you envision a way for the Republican Party to survive Trump? What happens, you know, whether he wins uh, in the next election or not? Where does the Republican Party go from here? So long as there are only two choices, they're going to get some votes. I think that the biggest thing they should be concerned about is not a place like California, because they haven't won there in years and they're not going to, but places like the Texas suburbs, right, where because there's only two choices, Republican versus Democrat, now a lot of people like me who grew up in suburban Dallas, uh, you know, are voting Democrat because they they can't abide their Republican representatives anymore. And so I think that that's the place where, you know, look, it's whether or not it's the urban core, which they've lost for generations, the suburbs are a big part. As soon as they start to lose the exurbs, right, those sort of that the place where you look out your backyard and you see an open field, I think you're in trouble because now you've got the rural, you know, you only have the most empty places left, like Wyoming, North Dakota, and that's not enough to get elected. To you, Reed, what is the biggest threat to our democracy right now? It's frankly a lack of community. Um, And what I mean by that is, and you all know this, and I grew up this way too, is that in your neighborhood, you knew your neighbors. Uh, I played with the neighborhood kids, you know, on my street. We were out till dark. And and so we had a collective um, concern for one another, which I think has really eroded. And I think what you see is that that lack of community also now starts to bleed into our, our politics at whatever level, because what it says is, it doesn't matter where I live. It doesn't matter what I do. The lights turn on. The garbage gets picked up. My phone works. 
And so people have less and less responsibility for the direction of the country because they believe it doesn't matter anyway. And so I think that as long as that apathy continues to grow, which the kind of behavior we see now you know, exacerbates, then I think that is the biggest thing because you know, all of, none of this stuff is predestined. Right, the, the 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 Constitution is a piece of paper that sits in the archives. It doesn't have to be more than it is. It's more than it is because we believe it is, and as long as that belief is allowed to erode or we forget the principles by which we have all agreed to live, then that's I think the darkest path. What's happened here has been echoed overseas uh, with the rise of of populism, the rise of of nationalism as well, with Duterte in the Philippines, mm-hmm. uh, Orban in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, Bolsonaro in Brazil, all are fiery populists Mm -hmm. and use extremely harsh rhetoric about uh, their opponents and also about democratic institutions, and in some cases are blowing up constitutions Mm -hmm. uh, to keep themselves in power for decades. So how much of what's going on overseas do you see being a threat to democracy here? We always overthink the future because we can't predict it. But I would say that, you know, we should not underestimate the idea that just because it's happening there, it can't happen here. And then it can't happen on either side of the aisle. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things we've seen you were asking about, you know, whether or not it's just Republicans, just Democrats, is how many Democrats on debate stages have talked about on day one, I'll do this via executive order, which basically says I'm not even going to try to do it via legislation, which is the way I'm supposed to do it. You recently wrote a column where you said that civility won't fix America. You know, a lot of this show, a lot of our reason for being is to promote the idea that it is possible to have constructive dialogue across political divides, that you can disagree deeply without Mm. hating your enemy. And civility is a key, not the only part of it, a key part of it. But So what do you mean? Why won't civility... well, uh, solve you know, this problem. I think that we're we're living probably in as uncivil an age as we've seen domestically probably since the late 60s. What you see now is, you know, I think of it as sort of like, you know, a bully on the playground, right? If President Trump is the one who is most uncivil and you allow him to continue being uncivil without any repercussions or without any response, I think it further erodes the idea that there should be civility in American politics. Uh, secondly, I think also it it um, it depresses those people who might otherwise get engaged because they say, well, look, he's just going to keep doing this. Nobody fights back. And then third, if you're going to deal with a bully, once in a while you got to punch him in the nose, metaphorically even, right? Like what's outside the bounds of American politics now? And if you're just going to sit there and go, well, he's mean and, and I don't like what he says, I mean— I'm just not going to work. So why isn't civility the answer to Trump mm. um, by his opponents? Um, because he will take your civility and squash you with it. You know, the Democrats are playing chess and Trump's eating the pieces, right? Like, it's not the same ball game. American politics has always been a very rough and tumble business. We're now in a new layer of that rough and tumbleness. Um, but I think it's one that we cannot just say we're going to sit back and and not fight back because it's it doesn't make me feel good at night. You've expressed concern that the next election might be between a far left mm-hmm. progressive and and Trump. You've called that you know a decision a choice between a socialist and a sociopath. Mm-hmm. Why would that be bad for American politics? Let's take Michigan as as an exemplar. Um, if Elizabeth Warren is the nominee and she says to UAW workers in Michigan, 
I'm glad you have your health care and you've bargained for this, but you're now not going to keep it. How many UAW workers are going to vote for Elizabeth Warren in Michigan? Probably not that many, because you know what? They like their health care, and they don't want to lose it. I think also, you know, I, uh, as some friends of mine and I who did some work uh, for a potential independent candidate, we did a ton of research, and what we saw is that when you put the, the socialist up versus the sociopath, the sociopath wins. You know why? Because the sociopath isn't going to steal your shit, and the socialist might. And so people aren't willing to make that gamble. Isn't going to steal your shit because, for instance, with health care, taking away what you currently have Correct. With, with your current health care. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So and I think there's also still, even in, even in this country, even among, you know, regardless of stripe, I think there's still a fundamental, if not distrust, then unease with government being in charge of things. Yeah, yeah. the 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 best argument I've heard is, uh, do you really want the guys who uh, run the DMV to be in charge of your health? Yes, and if you've ever been to a California DMV, I can promise you, you do not want them doing brain <laughs> yeah, surgery on or you. Or do you want your hospital turned into a, a branch of the VA? Right, right. So I'm making Jim's arguments for him, which is always dangerous. So I'm a little. It confused. shows that I'm winning, Richard. I'm winning. <laughs> I'm a little confused. Sure. Okay, because on the one hand, you're saying Democrats shouldn't be too left. But on the other hand, you're saying they shouldn't be too civil. Mm. So what's the best argument, not just for, for Democrats, but for in general, for opponents of, of Trump and his populism? From a policy perspective, um, we see that the Democrats, the progressive Democrats have you know, a lot of strength in, in, in this election so far. But what I think that the field has really failed to do so far is really make this about the country writ large. A lot of these, a lot of these folks have. I call it the tails wagging the dogs, right? Is that they have a lot of plans and a lot of things they want to do, um, but they don't say why or how they're going to execute a vision for all of the American people and bring the American country and this what we are back to where it should be, which is I think an antidote to Trump. If you fundamentally believe that America is a broken and flawed place and it needs these you know, comparatively radical solutions, then it's very difficult to say I'm a better American than Donald Trump when he's going to lean on patriotism, populism, and nationalism. But at the same time, it doesn't it seem like with the economy the way it's going right now that any normal Republican would be cruising to victory uh, in this in the in the current climate. I mean, unemployment's lower than ever. Sure. Uh, and. Is Trump just kind of poisoning his own well? Uh, I, yes, and that's been his, been his M.O. forever, right? This is a guy who, you know, he leaves himself a trail of gasoline, and then when he walks back on it, he lights it on fire, right? Um, I think, yeah, to your point, any normal Republican would probably be at 55% uh, support right now nationally and probably be cruising to re-election, and the Democrats would just say, let's get through this and try and try again in four years. That's not where we are, and it's simply because of— his behavior. I think what you see too is that a lot of the stuff that we talk about, whether or not it's in New York or DC and national politics and media, doesn't break through to the state, local, regional level, right? They feel the, the heat, they see the light, but it's not affecting individual Americans yet because of what you talked about, which is it is a good economy. Most people who want a job can have a job. Most people, regardless of what you might hear in the news, are covered by some coverage, whether or not that's their employer, whether or not that's Medicare, Medicaid, or some state program. And so most people are saying, okay, you know, I don't like the environment. I don't like what's happening. I don't like what these people are saying, whether or not it's Donald Trump or a Democrat. So what I think and what I wrote is the biggest issue is that the people who are most able to make the change, which are those probably 70% of people who live in the middle every day, 
further and further disengage. And I think that's really, I think, another big part of the civility piece, which is people just get sick of it all and say, I'm not even going to participate. And that is allows for worse and worse actors at the state, local, and federal level to start rising because people just don't participate. Our show is called How Do We Fix It? And we're going to talk about possible solutions after the break. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest is Reed Galen, who is a political strategist and independent. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we get back to our interview with Reed Galen, we want to take a quick break to do something we've talked about doing on this show for a long time, which is occasional recommendations. What are we reading? What are we listening to? What are we watching that we think might be of interest to the How Do We Fix It community? Yeah, so here's my first recommendation. I'm reading right now, Ill Wins, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. It's by Larry Diamond. And if you want to know more about why our democracy is under threat and how to fix it, it's a good one. My recommendation is a singer-songwriter I've been listening to a lot lately, Belinda Carlisle. This is not a new discovery. I mean, she's gotten a gazillion Grammy nominations and is quite popular. If you liked an artist like, say, Roseanne Cash, Belinda Carlisle is very much in that mold, but very, very powerful and very topical in many of her songs. Okay, second recommendation for me. This is a movie by the uh, Korean director Jun Ho Bong, a wonderful film called Parasite. Uh, it's gripping, it's dark, it's funny, it's, it's really unexpected. And what surprised me about it is while it raises questions about wealth inequality and how we live today, it's also very entertaining. My book suggestion is not a light read. It's called Golden Rice, The Imperiled Birth of a GMO Superfood by Ed Regis. But it's about the incredible scientific journey to create this type of rice that would be modified to have much more vitamin A, and yet was fought by Greenpeace and other interest groups that were very much opposed to genetically modified foods, how small groups of activists can undermine something that could be such a powerful force for better health around the world. Now, back to our interview with Reed Galen. Our nation's founders, who wrote the core documents that our government is built on, set up our system to be self-correcting, to mm -hmm. pull back from extremism, and to tame the, the madness of crowds, to not be fully democratic in the way that would allow temporary surges of, of powerful sentiments to take over the whole system. Mm -hmm. Do you see that happening? How can that happen? How can we help our democracy regain stability? 
you know, look, whether or not it was how we elect presidents, whether or not it's how the Congress works for it via legislation, it was meant to be slow, right? We were reacting to King George III and what we believed were arbitrary and capricious in- incursions on our freedoms. And so I think now what you see is that the system is working, but its fail-safes are gridlock, right? It's not let's let anybody do anything. It's let's n- let no one do nothing, right? So what we have now is a place where on any given day, if there's an issue of national import that can only be solved by legislation, it's probably not going to happen, you know, with the exception of, uh, I think, criminal justice reform, which actually got a lot of bipartisan support, and President Trump actually signed that bill into law. Um, it is possible, but it's, it's rare at this point. Even saying, I'm willing to work with Republicans is now a sin, or I'm willing to work with Democrats is a sin. We should talk about an exception to what you're saying, which is governors. There are a number of both Democratic and Republican governors sure. who are kind of bipartisan in the way they govern. So what's going on there? Why is it that governors very often are um, more moderate and, sure. and reaching across the aisle so, than, than is the case with, with, with others? Right. And I mean, I think you've seen this. I mean, Massachusetts is a good example. New York um, Maryland, uh, California used to be one, you know, and, and, and after governor, you know, Arnold, it was Schwarzenegger, it was Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Um, but you know, Pete Wilson before him, George Duke Magian before him, blue states have always been willing to, to give moderate Republicans uh, a chance to govern because they said, okay, they're going to leave us alone on social issues and they're probably going to watch the, the pennies. Right. And I'm all for that. Right. right. And I think you've seen Baker do an excellent job of that. Hogan do an excellent job of that. If either one of them ran for the United States Senate, forget about it. All politics is emotional, and then, like every decision, and then we wrap rationality around it. Voters respond to people who have vision, who can, who can understand and emote with the things that they care about and they worry about, regardless of party label. And so if Larry Hogan says, I understand that Baltimore City is in a really, really bad way, and I understand and I care about that and I want to fix those things— then I don't know how many votes he got in Baltimore City, but it was probably more than he would have otherwise gotten had he said, Baltimore City, forget about it. You're on your own. Impeachment. Leaving aside for the moment questions of the pros and cons of the argument for impeaching Trump or even going back for impeaching Clinton, what impact do impeachment proceedings have on the health of our body politic? Well, this is not a legal proceeding. Impeachment is a political process. It, you know, this is not like there's not a district attorney. There's not, you know, an, an, the indictment comes from the House, right? That's the impeachment. The Senate will, will hold the trial. Um, I think, is it something that is good? No. Um, but I think now this is probably a pressure valve that needs to be released. If, if, the, if the Democrats impeach him and the Republicans exonerate him, will it have an effect on his electoral chances? It probably will. Um, but I think it's also a necessary thing and, because and help been, them. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think we know yet because I think that the one thing that we've seen about the president is the further and further you push him into a corner, uh, the the more and more erratic he is, which is say, really saying something. Michelle Obama mm-hmm. once famously said, "When they go low, we go high." Mm-hmm. Is that part of the answer? Uh, I think it it will be. Um, in, in whatever the next epoch of American politics is. Unfortunately, right now, I think we're in a very 
bare knuckle brawl you know, place in our politics. And as much as I admire Mrs. Obama, and I believe that she is probably the one person in this country who could make that a reality, to be honest with you, I'm not sure there's anybody else who can speak to that kind of ethos like she can, or frankly, like President Obama could. Um, and so I think for now, it's going to have to be, you know, roll up your sleeves and let's go to town. I just don't know that there is a place where, um, you know, kumbaya and let's have a Coke and a smile is going to get us there. You wrote recently that that we know from our history what can happen when good men and women do nothing. Mm -hmm. What does happen? We see what happens when demagogues are allowed to rise unchecked and people say, well, it's okay with me. It doesn't bother me. My lights turn on. And we can't have that. That's, it has to be more than about whether or not your personal issues are solved on a daily basis and whether or not you believe in something bigger. So are you saying that in order to be effective, an opponent to Trump has to make the moral case. I think so. Yeah, I think uh, the moral case is huge because first and foremost, we know that there's no Donald Trump cannot make a moral case. But the other, this, the other side of that, though, is we also see that he gets a massive discount rate on his bad behavior, both current and past, right? Because it's so baked into what everybody thinks about. And so, yeah, it has to be a moral case for not only the current part, state of the country, but the future of the country, which is... We have been a beacon. We have been the city on the hill for hundreds of years in this world, right? The, the post-war world would not exist without the United States. Are we imperfect? Highly imperfect. It used to be that we exported not only American products, but American ideals. And until we get to a place where internally we live by those ideals, it's going to be impossible for us to export them. Reed Galen, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thanks for having me. Any thoughts at all, Jim, about what Reed Galen sure. said? I, 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 yeah. So I'm glad everybody's so concerned about threats to democracy because we didn't hear much about this on the left or even mainstream liberal world when uh, Hugo Chavez was systematically dismantling one of the most vibrant democracies in Latin America, Venezuela, or Evo Morales, who's just finally step down after attempting to rig elections, pack courts, undo democracy in Bolivia. We tend to get upset about this stuff when it comes from the right, uh, and it's often crickets when it comes from the left. I'm not saying one excuses the other. I'm saying both are bad. I'd love a little more even-handedness on this issue. I don't think you can have even-handedness about the threat from populism, which has been thoroughly embraced by most Republicans. And populists claim they alone are the champions of the people. They belittle immigrants. They trash trust in democratic institutions and a free press. And they've pretty much taken over the Republican establishment with Donald Trump right now. So I would argue that, that the threat from the right to democracy uh, via populism is, is much greater than anything the left has come up with so far in America. Let's keep a sharp eye on both sides. I say we should investigate this more thoroughly in a future episode. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The music is by Lou Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. We're a podcast consultancy. We may be able to make a podcast for you. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. Selling a little? 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.